All right, 1 Kings chapter 8. Covenants and character is the theme of First and Second Kings, and Solomon has been seeing God's faithfulness to his covenant, that God would condescend to have his glory reside in the temple, blew Solomon away, even though that's exactly what God promised he would do. And when God did that, Solomon, in his awe, he could have ended the ceremony and authorized the temple's use, but instead, after it's all said and done, he gets on his knees and he lifts his hand to the sky and he asks God to do even more. Solomon knows a person could pray in any direction and God would answer, because God cannot be contained by any earthly building. But Solomon's desire is that the temple would serve as a reminder that God desires to have a relationship with those who seek Him. And when it reminds them and they pray toward that building, that God would hear. We saw that in our Scripture reading with Daniel, who, he says, Lord, we don't deserve anything. This is all our fault. You have always kept everything you said you'd do. You've done it. This is all our fault, Lord. He says it over and over and over again. But he says, Lord, we're your people still. And would you look and hear and forgive and restore? Solomon's prayer here, the kind of prayers that Solomon asked God to treat as special, we began studying last week. In verses 31 and 32, he says, If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and an oath come before your altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and do, and judge your servants, and condemning the wicked, and bringing his way upon his head, and justifying the righteous, and giving him according to his righteousness. He prays for regarding issues of individual sin. In verses 33 through 40, he asks God to listen to prayers regarding national sin. He gives various different reasons. There's famine or this or that. He says, Lord, and we turn to you and we confess our sin. Would you hear and would you forgive? And now in verse 41, we're going to pick it up tonight. He asks God a very interesting request, a very interesting kind of prayer to hear the prayers that come from Gentiles. Verse 41, it says this, Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people, Israel, but comes out of a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and of your strong hand and of your stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for that all the people of the earth may know your name, to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know this house which I have builded is called by your name. I love the word moreover here because it lets us know that Solomon's just making a lot of requests. I mean, he's just while they're striking while the iron's hot. He says, oh, Lord, if I'm asking. You haven't struck me dead. I'm going to keep asking. And this just shows that he believes God is a good God. I find very often that people don't pray, I, when myself, when I don't pray, is because either I, I don't really believe it works or I don't believe God is good enough to answer me. This is an area we should be more like Solomon, believing that God is good and that prayer works. If there's anything that I, well, there's a few things I would wish to go back and tell my younger self, but one of the things it would be, listen, Will, I'm from the future and prayer works, so stop being lazy with it. I would strongly encourage myself to 
Think of all the things that God could do because of how much he loves us and how good he is. To seek his face, to cry out to him. Well, Solomon does that here, he says, for the stranger. Moreover, concerning a stranger. It just means a foreigner, a non-Israelite, a Gentile. What an interesting thing. He says that if a Gentile is not of your people Israel, but comes out of a far country, and he explains why, for your name's sake. For, verse 42 explains, they shall hear of your great name and of your strong hand and of your outstretched arm. I absolutely love here that Solomon expects God to do enough great things through Israel's prayers to this temple that non-believers will be curious and seek out the Lord at that place. I think that's fascinating. Like, very often I think we don't have much to share with unbelievers because we just don't pray. I mean, think about how excited you would be if you were seeing God answer prayer on a regular basis. I don't know about you, but like, I remember there was a time, and I've probably shared this story a thousand times, so bear with me again. There was a time when we had a situation in our home, and our homeowner's insurance, they, they said, we're not going to cover this, You're gonna, this is all going to be out of pocket. And I was like, God, I, we can't afford to do this, and yet it was a situation that had to be taken care of. It was a safety hazard. And I remember praying that night with Bev, and, and I was so not filled with faith. I mean, these were not like, I was angry. They were almost like angry prayers. Like, I'm praying because I have to because I have nowhere to look, nowhere else to go. I was frustrated because all my efforts to take care of it on my own weren't working. And then the next day, when I spoke to the insurance agent to qualify a couple things, whatever, then this time she tells me, she goes, well, here I see that we cover everything. And I'm like, cover everything? And I'm like, she goes, that's what my thing's telling me here. I'm like, I'm looking at my policy right now, and it says I don't. And she goes, well, the policy in front of me says we do. I remember I wanted to run around and just grab every child and throw them up in the air, you know. And, and I was like, this is what happened. This is so cool. Like, how did this never happens? Like, you know, wow. I wanted to tell everybody about it. I wonder if I, not angry prayers, but much more faith-filled prayers, if I was just praying more and more and more. And I, and I find myself, now that I am praying a lot more and watching God move in mighty ways, I've got a lot to talk about. I've got a lot more to say. I can, guess what God did this week? Guess what God did yesterday? I think oftentimes when we're with our co-workers or our neighbors and we don't, like, I don't know how to share my faith. I get it. I, I've been there. But a lot of times maybe it's just because we're not experiencing the goodness of God in our lives. Do you want to make your neighbors and your coworkers and family members who don't believe truly interested in your faith? Fervently pray for things. Then share how God has answered your prayers with those people because they will perk up. They will perk up when they hear. Because how can you not? I remember when I've told, I've told stories to people sometimes. They'll come in my office for a meeting and I'll, they'll make a statement. And it's an unbiblical statement. And I'll say, well, that's not true. And I say, well, how do you know? And I say, well, the Bible says that. And I say, well, okay, but I haven't seen that work in my life. And I said, well, let me tell you a story. And I'm not, they know I'm not just making up the story. I said, let me tell you how God came through for me. I remember I had a dear, dear broken man. His son was in the chains of depression and no way out, it seemed like. And he showed up at church just broken and shattered. And that morning I had, happened to be sharing about my own experiences with depression and how God helped me to overcome. And he walked up to me afterwards and he looked me in the eye and he goes, how? 
how he goes, I know you weren't telling a story. I could see the same look in your eyes that I see in my son. How? I've had people sit across me when I've shared the same thing about how God has rescued me from that, and they look at me because they know I'm not lying to them. When I explain where I was, when I explain the thoughts that were in my head, I explain all the battles I was fighting, they get it. They're like, you know, you understand. But how are you like this now? And I can tell them, I say, let me tell you what God did. You can trust his promises. You can trust doing things his way. You can trust that he's good. You can trust that he's almighty. It lends so much more weight to what we say when, and I'm not against creeds, but I'm just saying when, when our faith is more than a creed. I, I think, hmm, probably going to get in trouble for saying this. I think, I think too often, people hear us shouting from the mountaintops what we believe and what we stand for and what we won't stand for. And when it doesn't match our everyday lives, we cry to them something very natural instead of something supernatural. Anybody can have a creed. Anybody can have a system that they are fervent in. Anyone can stand on something people that flew their planes into the, the buildings on 9-11 just 21 years ago. They believed in something, enough to give their life for it. But what they believed in was not going to help anybody. I want people to hear what God's doing in my life and to see it for something real, to see it for a real change, like well, I knew Will when he was like this, and now he's like this. Why? And that's what Solomon says. They're going to hear. They're going to hear of your great name and of your strong hand, of your stretched out arm. And so, Lord, when he shall come and pray toward this house here, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. Hear their prayers too, Lord, so that they will know that you alone are God and they will trust you like we do. That they would know your name to fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Solomon is one of the few people in the Old Testament who understood God's heart. That God wanted to reach the entire world with the truth. I think Solomon would have cringed hearing the things that the religious leaders in Jesus' day taught about Gentiles, that they were only created by God to keep hell hot. God wants a relationship with every person He's made, and you can tell that to every person you meet with absolute confidence. Every single individual, every single human being you bump into, you can tell them with absolute confidence that God wants to have a relationship with them. And I love how Solomon says, this house that I've built is called by your name, not my name. <laughs> I don't want people to think about me when they think about the temple. I want them to think about you, Lord. When I read about Solomon in this prayer, this is a guy I would have liked to have sat down and had lunch with. Like I would have loved to have like, just sat down and been like, tell me what was going through your head when you prayed that prayer. Tell me all your hopes and dreams. Tell me all the things that you want your life to be. This is a man who at this point in his life wanted God's glory above his own and 
He wanted all to come to know the Lord. I don't know about you, but I take that as a very sober warning because it means backsliding can happen to the best of us if we don't stay close to Jesus. Verse 44, Solomon next asks for prayers regarding military ventures. He says in verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever you shall send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which you have chosen, Jerusalem, and toward the house which I have built for your name, the temple, then hear thou in heaven that prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. It's interesting that Solomon points out here, if they go out to battle whithersoever you shall send them. So that means that Israel could go out to battle on their own, to go fight a fight that God didn't send them to fight. I think one of the saddest and best examples of that, of a king who got Israel involved in a battle that God didn't send them to fight, is Josiah. Remember King Josiah? King Josiah was a good king, a godly king. But when Pharaoh Necho was coming, I think it was Necho, he was coming through the area of Israel's land, not to invade Israel, but to get to a little bit north of there. I think Carchemish is the place where he fought against the king of Assyria. He was going out to deal with the king of Assyria. And Josiah was like, I don't like, I don't like foreign troops in my land. I don't, I don't like the Egyptians being here. And so he goes out to fight him. And the Egyptian king came out to him and said, listen, God has sent me to go fight the king of Assyria. God has not sent me to fight you. Go home. I have no problem with you. This is not your battle. And Josiah said, it is my battle. And he ended up dying, a young man. And his sons became king, and it wasn't long after that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. So it was possible that Israel could go out and fight when it wasn't the Lord who sent them to fight. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go out on any fight that God doesn't send me on. I have found myself in fights where you look around and you go, Lord, where are you? And he goes, I didn't send you here. (laughs) I didn't send you here. He says, but when you have sent us, Lord, and they cry to you for victory, he says, maintain their cause. In other words, it means do justice for them. Solomon isn't asking God for a blank check to bless any military excursion. He's asking for God to give them victory when he has led them to take this action because the cause is just. And when the cause is just, he says, Lord, do justice for them. Mete out justice upon their enemies. War is an awful thing, but in a fallen world, there are times when it is just and when it is necessary. Jesus himself will wage war on the Antichrist and his armies. God will wage war on those who rebel at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible in the Old Testament calls him a man of war. There are times when he goes to war. So while war may be an awful thing, in a fallen world, there are times when it is just and when it is necessary. Verse 46. Next he prays for, he asks God to hear prayers toward the temple by those who are in exile. And this is where Daniel's prayer would fall into place. Verse 46. And if they sin against you, for there is no man that does not sin, and you be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near, Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land where they are carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto you in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and done perversely. We have committed wickedness. 
And so return unto you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive. And they pray unto you toward their land, which you gave unto their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people that have sinned against you. I love the phrase here in verse 48. Six, where he says, and if they sin against you, for there is no man that does not sin. The idea that all sin and fall short of, the glory of God's standard is not a New Testament teaching. That's not a new idea in the New Testament. It is found all throughout the Old Testament. And so we must understand that no one will get to heaven for being good because no one is good. Now, here we see in verse 46, if they sin against you, but he, he calls them your people all throughout this. So this is a reference to national sin, not just an individual sin. When the nation sins, they, he says, and you be angry with them, and you deliver them to the enemy so that they are carried away captive unto the land of the enemy far or near. Lord, when that happens, if they turn to you, hear. Now, this anger here where it says, when you be angry with them, this is not an emotional anger. This is a word that describes a righteous indignation when a wrong is done. In other words, Solomon is not describing an emotional overreaction by God. God doesn't get angry like that. Now, God's anger can burst forth we see it on numerous occasions in the Old Testament, whereas anger bursts forth like a flood. But it is still not an overreaction, an emotional overreaction by God. God never does that. The anger here is God's just response to Israel's repeated sin and refusal to repent. And Solomon says sometimes that just response from God, that anger, could result in being exiled as slaves. And so in verse 47, if they shall bethink themselves, literally means if they shall turn back their heart if they shall turn back their heart to God in the land where they were carried captives, and they repent, and he keeps going on, he says in verse 49, then hear. And you know, I love that, the idea of turning back in your heart, because that's what repentance is. What is repentance? The word repentance in the Old Testament means to turn around. In the New Testament, it means to change the mind. Our heart is often used to describe our mind, the seat of our will, our intellect, our emotions. And so when we repent, what we're doing is we are pondering what we've done, and we decide to do a 180. We ponder what we've done, and we decide to turn around and go in the opposite direction. So yet, if they turn back their heart while they're in this land where they're carried captives and repent and make supplication unto you in the land that they have carried them captive, saying, we have sinned, and we have done perversely, and we have committed wickedness. The word phrase there, done perversely, it means to morally corrupt what is just and right. It's not just that they sinned, they fell short of God's standard. It's not just that they did evil, but they have corrupted morally what is just and right. Whew. We are living in a society that is morally corrupted what is just and right. When I was a young person, 
the atheist remark was, well, there's no scientific evidence for God. The atheist argument now is, I'm more holy than God. I'm more righteous than God. I'm more moral than God. I'm better than God. The argument is, well, the God of the Bible is not a good God. The, the God of Scripture is not a good God. I'm better to my kids than God is to his own son. I'm better to people than God is to people. And so they corrupt what is morally just and right into their own standard. While Solomon briefly addressed military defeat and exile in verses 33 and 34, he covers it in much greater detail here. And this is what's interesting is that he implies by this thing, we have done perversely, we have done wickedness, we have sinned. The idea here is that the cause of God's judgment this time isn't like the other time he mentioned it where it was idolatry. Here he implies that the cause of God's judgment isn't just wrong actions towards God, but God's judgment is also due to wrong treatment of others. You have done wickedness, you've done perversely, you have sinned. The implication is that God said to them, basically, if you want to treat each other selfishly, then I will show you what it is like to be treated selfishly as you suffer under the rule of another nation who cares nothing for you. And so, it's a good challenge for us. Do I tolerate selfish behavior in my life? If I want to change, I need to see my selfishness as a corruption of what is just and right. I think I read in in our Scripture reading this morning where it says, you know, most men will profess their own goodness, but a faithful man who can find We are a nation right now that tolerates wickedness, it seems like, from every corner, and we call it good. We have large swaths of people, many of them even in a church, who call the things God calls evil good. If I want to change the selfish behavior in my life, I need to see my selfishness as a corruption of what is just and right. I need to see it as a great evil in the eyes of God because only when I see it that way will I turn to God with all my heart. Verse 48, and so return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies. Now, if the nation turns back to you with all their heart, Solomon says, God, hear that special prayer and let them not be treated unjustly anymore. Verse 49, then hear that thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Do justice for them. Lord, you have put them under a people who doesn't care about them, but Lord, see that that is unjust and do justice for them. Verse 50, and forgive your people that have sinned against you and all their transgressions where they transgressed against you and give them compassion before those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. The word compassion there, it means mercy, favor, a loving feeling. And this is exactly what happened after Daniel prayed. This happened for the exiles when Persia defeated Babylon. God raised the Jewish people to great favor with the Persian kings, granting them a good life in exile and the freedom to return and rebuild their homeland if they wanted to. Well, Solomon makes all these bold requests on the basis of God's goodness, but he also makes it because God promised that they were his special people. Look at verse 51 for they be your people 
and your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron, that your eyes may be open unto the supplication of your servant and unto the supplication of your people Israel, to hearken unto them and all that they call for unto you. For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by the hand of Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. He says, Lord, let your eyes be open unto my prayer that I've just prayed and any future prayers that others prayed, he says in verse 52, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people to hearken unto them in all that they call unto you. And you know what I love about Solomon here? The basis of the reason he asked for God to be good, the basis of the reason he asked for God to forgive is Scripture. Solomon appeals to Scripture as the reason he expects God to say yes to this prayer. Lord, when an individual sins, hear the prayer that's prayed here. When the nation sins, hear the prayer that's prayed here. When we go out to battle because you sent us and we ask you to give us victory, hear the prayer that's prayed here. Why? Because the Bible says that we're your special people. I love, he, he says here, we didn't initiate this relationship with you, God. You initiated it with us. You did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by the hand of Moses, your servant. I wasn't out looking for God, but he was out looking for me. I love one of my Bible teachers at college he used to say, Jesus stormed the citadel of my heart and he took me captive. Solomon says, Lord, your promises were undeserved, but you made them to Moses, you made them to our forefathers, and I'm standing on those promises today. That's why my prayer is bold. That's why I'm asking for more. Even Lord, Lord, I asked you to come and participate in this temple, and you've already done that. Lord, you, you didn't have to do that, but you've already done, enough, you've done wonders. But Lord, I'm asking for more because you've promised this is who we are. And what a great way to end a prayer. God, I trust that you will hear my prayer because you're good, but also because you're faithful to your promises. So I ask you tonight, do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that God keeps his promises? Yes. Verse 54. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying, all this prayer and supplication of the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people Israel. According to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. When he describes the fact that he had given rest unto his people, it means literally a resting place. Israel, in their earliest history, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to come to the promised land, Abraham didn't settle anywhere for long. He was constantly in motion. He didn't own any land except the burial ground he purchased for Sarah. That's it. 
He was constantly on the move. When Isaac came around, he was constantly on the move, constantly in fights and in disputes with the Philistines about wells. And then, of course, Jacob. Jacob was always upsetting someone, always being the dirty, sneaky thief. He was always on the run somewhere. Israel had never had a resting place until God brought them to the promised land and gave them peace. The fact that they can be here, all the leaders of the whole nation, to worship and to watch God's presence be manifest there in the temple was evidence that God had given them peace. And so he says, God did everything that he told Moses he would do. All of his good promises have not failed, not even a single word. The phrase not failed there, it means not a single word of his was a lie. Not a single word of his was a lie. What about you? Do you think God isn't always as completely honest as you think he should be? Do you think he lies? You know, the enemy hasn't changed since Eden when he planted that doubt into Eve's mind. Has God really been honest with you? Has God really been good? Oh, I can't encourage you enough to embrace this mindset that Solomon had in this blessing because God has not lied at all. All his words towards us are good. Amen? Verse 57 He goes on to say, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And let these words with I have made supplication before the Lord be near unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant him and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is none else. Solomon blesses the Lord in front of the people saying he didn't break a single word of his promises. He never told a lie. But then he expresses his wish for God to be close to them. He says that, Lord God, be with us, verse 58, that he might incline our hearts unto him. The word there means to win over. He says, Lord, my my prayer and my desire as I'm speaking to the people, he says, I want God to win over all of our hearts, that we would walk in his ways, that we would keep his commandments and his judgments as he commanded our fathers. Solomon doesn't just want God to be involved in their lives so they remain prosperous and at peace. He wants the Lord to be involved so that their hearts will be won over, to always be faithful on their end of the relationship. That's why I love that phrase, Jesus stormed the citadel of my heart and he took me captive. Because there came a point where he didn't bludgeon me to death and say, repent and accept my name, otherwise I'll just wipe you out right here. He won me over to the place where I bent the knee and I was glad to be taken captive. How do the writers of the New Testament describe themselves? What's the word they use? Servant, bond slave, doulos. Bond slave, what's a bond slave? It's different than a normal slave. In Jewish culture, a bond slave was someone who had served out his tenure, and when he got to the end of it, he said, you know what? 
I like my master. He's a good master. He takes care of me, takes care of my family. And I'm not, I'm not very good on my own. <laughs> I want to stay with him. And then you would go down to the elders of the city or wherever it might be, and they'd take an awl and they'd pierce your ear and put an earring in there, and it would be evidence that you chose this life. All throughout the New Testament, you see them say, a servant of Jesus Christ, bond slave of Jesus Christ. There came a point in all those, I mean, think of Paul's story. There the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus, right? <laughs> Paul, what are you doing, man? <laughs> what are you doing? Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Knew enough to call him Lord. I am Jesus whom you persecute. It's been hard for you to kick against the goads. Why have you been fighting me? I'm good. Paul, I think one of the things that we might see a lot in heaven is two men sitting down talking, one by the name of Paul and the other by the name of Stephen. Because I don't think, I don't think Paul could ever, Saul of Tarsus, I don't think he could ever get the look on Stephen's face out of his head as he was dying. The joy on his face is he saw Jesus as his body was being destroyed here on the earth. I don't think Saul could reconcile that in his mind. I've got all the education. I've got all the energy, all the effort. I went through all the right channels. I am a Pharisee. It's almost like his actions after that were so furious to try to shut every Christian up dragging people before the Sanhedrin, seeing him condemned so he could drown out the reality of his own emptiness. And I think after hanging out with Jesus for a bit, first person probably Paul went to go see was likely Stephen. Because Stephen had something Paul didn't at that time. And I think at that moment when the Lord said, it's been hard, isn't it? You've been fighting this hard. Why? I'm good. I love you. When, I mean, Jesus didn't flatten him on the ground with a spear to his throat. Paul just finally said, what do you want me to do, Lord? He just laid it down. I love here how Solomon makes it clear that God did not leave or forsake Israel even in judgment. And we can know that for ourselves. Because after all these things that Solomon's praying, that their relationship with God would be strong and they reject it, and God judges them, and now the writer here is writing to exiles in Babylon. Even then, God did not leave or forsake Israel when they returned and turned away from Him once again. Even in a time period when Jesus was around and so many hearts were far from the Lord, where Jesus described them like Isaiah did, saying, they draw near, these people draw near to me with my lips, but their hearts are far from me. That was how Jesus described his own generation. It's not my words, his. God did not leave or forsake Israel even in that time period, but he came even closer, becoming a man and walking in their midst. And even though that they rejected him and turned him over to be crucified, God still will not leave or forsake His people Israel. He will come again and He will win their hearts over before He rules by their side for a thousand years.
And so we can say with confidence that God answered Solomon's prayer here with a yes in every way. If we begin to say that the church is Israel or that God's through with Israel, then God broke His promise to Solomon. Because later on we're going to see that Solomon says, yes, I will do everything you asked. We must never think that God broke His promise to Solomon by saying the church is Israel. And yet, Solomon has a heart for more than just Israel. He says in verse 60 that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Solomon's other motivation here is not just for his people to have a close relationship with God, but for the truth to spread all over the world. One of Israel's biggest failures is that they taught themselves to hate the world that hated them. We in the church must not make the same mistake. We must not hate those who hate us. We are called to go out as sheep amongst wolves. Matthew 10, 16, he tells the group there, he says, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a wolf who came by with a gift for a sheep. Not unless it was some barbecue sauce. <laughs> wolves don't have any love for sheep. Now, we're not to be naive. We're to be mindful of that. Be wise as serpents. A serpent doesn't just go out into the middle of an open field when there are seven hawks perched on the trees. I was... I was in my front yard, uh, my porch, just reading my Bible a couple weeks ago, and I was noticing there's a lot of lizards just all on the wall, and then all of a sudden, like, they all jumped up a little higher, and I'm like, what's going on? Not even, like, 10 seconds later, a little snake comes slithering out. His head's up. He's ready to strike. You know? Don't be a lizard is going to be like, oh, what's that? Yeah, no big deal. No. But at the same time, be harmless as a dove. We're to be mindful of the fact that wolves have no love for sheep, but we're to love them and seek to share the truth of the great God that we love with them. Well, Solomon's last words here, he charges his people to walk with the Lord. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord your God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Perfect here just means to be wholly devoted. It doesn't mean to be sinless. He says, let your heart therefore be fully devoted, wholly devoted to the Lord your God, to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments that is, as it is that day. In other words, today is a special day, guys, but we all have a part to play moving forward. And the truth is, you and I have a part to play moving forward. Let's be those whose hearts are wholly devoted to the Lord to live in a way that pleases Him. Amen? Well, verses 62 through 66, it just closes off with a huge celebration that now goes beyond just this little gathering of leaders, uh, national leaders. Verse 62, and the king and then all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. So this is all the leaders with him. And then Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. So these peace offerings, there are three types of voluntary offerings you can give. A burnt offering, which is, you don't need any of that. It's symbolic of the fact that you've given your life totally to the Lord. Usually it meant like a dedicated period of service. The grain offering, which was a, a just you're dedicating your service to the Lord in some way. And then thirdly, the peace offering, which really just was 
for anything. It it could be for hanging out with the Lord. It could be for celebrating with your family at the the tabernacle. It could have been for anything. It was really just because you just wanted to thank the Lord or honor the Lord or spend time with the Lord. And so this voluntary offering here of just wanting to hang out with the Lord was usually a communal feast. And this one was massive. I mean, he's offering 120,000 sheep. I don't know if I've ever seen 120,000 animals in one place. And in addition to that, 22,000 oxen. That is a lot of euros. Lamb. Like, isn't that what that is? Lamb and beef and all that kind of stuff mixed together? Maybe it's not euros. Maybe it's something else. It's a lot of food either way. A lot of meat. Verse 64, the same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. The word hallow here means to consecrate for sacred use. It tells us why he had to do this. For there he offered burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the brass altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive all the burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. I dare say when you have 120,000 animals being butchered plus 22,000 oxen, one altar is not going to cut it. So he actually had to the courtyard that was in front of the temple, he had to make that holy as well. They had to do, I don't know what they did to do that. It doesn't tell us what they did. But the area there outside the temple was surrounded by a wall, but it didn't contain much. And so Solomon consecrated the entire area by bringing in more altars to accommodate the large amount of offerings. Verse 65. I don't know how many national leaders were there, but it couldn't have been enough to eat all this food. So verse 65, and at that time, with all the abundance of food available, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven and seven days, even 14 days. So at this point, because of all the meat and food that's being offered, Solomon invites the entire nation from all the way up north, all the way down south, any Israelite who wants to come to the celebration can come. And so for the next 14 days, Israelites from all over the kingdom traveled to join the celebration. And when it was over, the people were left with an overwhelming sense of God's goodness and faithfulness. Verse 66 And on the eighth day, not the eighth day, but the second set of seven days, it gives, kind of gives the idea that they'd planned for like a seven-day feast, and then like day eight came around, and there's kind of like all the people waiting in line to see the Queen of England. Like people waiting like 14 hours or something like that to see. Different, different culture. I wouldn't wait for, I'd wait 14 hours for nothing. I gotta wait 14 hours at Disney, I'm going home. So on the eighth day, the idea is they did for seven days, and there's just so many people there, they extended it another seven days. So the eighth day really refers to the 15th day. On the 15th day, he sent the people away. And look here, they blessed the king, and they went under their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David his servant and for Israel his people. In other words, it's not just Solomon and the national leaders that walk away going, God keeps His promises. The entire nation walked away going, God keeps His promises. Now, I want you to put yourself in the position of someone who's reading this for the first time as an exile in Babylon. Most people probably didn't have a copy of it in their hands. Someone probably read it to them. 
But I can only guess that as this was being read to whatever group it was at in front of at the time, and then the next group and the next group, that when they got to this section, that there was probably some serious trembling going on. Because at the end of verse 66, there's not a single Israelite who is not testifying to God's faithfulness to His covenant. If you read the book of Ezekiel, time and time again, Ezekiel rebukes the people in exile in Babylon for saying, God has forsaken us. God has failed us. God does keep his end of the bargain. And if you were one of those exiles who had maybe uttered those words or thought those thoughts, and you heard every single one of your people declaring, God keeps his covenants, God keeps his promises. It must have been very convicting. But it also must have been very encouraging. And I don't know about you, but that's often why I find myself trembling sometimes when I'll hear the Word of God being taught or I'll be reading my Bible. I think of some of the wrong thoughts that were in my head or my wrong evaluation of God. And so you hold in the one hand, you think, Lord, I've said and thought things that are not right. But then hold in your other hand, God, there's still hope for me. And that is the beautiful thing that we have from this book that it's constantly reminding us. It wants to address our wrong ideas about God, His character, and it wants us to be corrected. That the things that we think and the things that we might say about God that are not true that we would see a steadfast testimony from His Word, that God keeps His promises, God keeps His covenants, and God's character is unassailable. That we would, instead of looking externally and blaming Him for what's going on in my life, that I would reflect internally and say, Lord, is there perverseness in me? Is there wickedness in me? And then with hope, cling to the promises of His mercy and His forgiveness and His strength and His help and His restoration and His power to change us. So my hope for you this evening is that you will receive that because His promises are for us as well. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we're so grateful for a book that is thousands of years removed from our culture and yet it is so close to our experience. No, Lord, we, we don't live in a land with King Solomon and we don't have a temple and we don't have the same structure that Israel had. But Lord, we're just like them in so many ways, both the good and the bad. Lord, many times we're like Solomon. We want all the right things and our hearts are in the right place and we say and do wonderful things that please your heart and then, Lord, sometimes we're not like him at all but we declare this evening that we believe that you are good and you are steadfast to your promises. Lord, that your character is always to be faithful. Ours is not. And so, Lord, we look to you with hope that wherever we might be tonight, and you know every heart here, I pray that you would incline, Lord, every heart with your goodness, Lord, draw us like you did with Paul. Draw us like you've done with so many others. 
to that place where we want that closeness with you. We want to walk in your ways. Lord, that all of us might settle it in our hearts that you are good and you do not lie. Lord, that we would always be able to look to you when things are rough. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for these beautiful promises. Thank you that we can have hope at all times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.